Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together today to uh, sit under the preaching of your word. Uh, Thank you for giving us word to preach. And thank you for giving us preachers. Thank you for so long, God. In the beginning, it was your men that you called out of darkness and, and into light. You called them to lead their families and to lead their people to you. And God, you raised up prophets, prophets whom you spoke to and put your word in their mouth and they became mouthpieces for you. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to declare your truth and your word in its fullness. He brought along with him disciples, men that he taught and trained who would become Apostles who would lead and and build the church on the foundation of your word and your truth. And you have, God, for the last 2,000 years now been raising up pastors to follow in the footsteps of those apostles and those prophets that went before to be your mouthpiece. So, God, I thank you for the preachers that you have blessed my life with. I thank you for the men that you have raised up to be faithful in teaching your word. Men who lived in times that were uh, uncomfortable, times that were hostile to the gospel. Um, That You raised up men who were willing to sacrifice their lives to make sure that your word was preached and that your people were uh, growing and learning and edified because of it. I thank you for the preachers today who uh, feed my soul. And God, I pray that you would help me uh, as preacher here today to be faithful in feeding the souls that are here today. I pray that all of us, including myself, as I sit under preaching from your Holy Spirit here, I pray that all of us would be nourished, that we would be given a good meal that would be helpful for us, it would give us strength, it would give us courage, it would give us wisdom. It would help us to live for your glory and to enjoy you today and in the weeks to come. So this is our hope and prayer as we come to the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in a special way, that you would come and be with us in a special way, that you would fill us with your Spirit to the brim that we would receive what we need to receive from you. Help us, God, to be humble and open receptacles, that we would receive everything that you are ready and willing to give. We love you. We give you praise and glory and honor. We pray this confidently because we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Please open your Bible again. If you don't have one, use one in front of you. We would love for you to read along with us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 today. Paul is writing to Timothy. And Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from prison. He's most likely in Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, not a friendly place. It's probably about the year 64, 65 A.D. He lives in a hostile environment. It is especially hostile if you're a Christian. Some of you know history. Know that just recently, around this time, 
that Nero, most likely, the emperor of Rome, set fire to Rome and blamed the Christians for it. And so Christians were were hated by a good number of people. And Paul is the most influential Christian in Asia at the time. So Paul is locked up. And he is thrown in prison where he is awaiting execution. And as he is on death row, he writes a letter to his closest friend, Timothy. And one of the things that Paul is clearly telling Timothy in this letter is this. Timothy, I'm a minister of the gospel. Timothy, you're a minister of the gospel. Timothy, you see my life and you see where being in ministry has led me. Timothy, don't expect anything different in your life. Which is why Paul is continuously telling Timothy, he is telling him to be ready to endure hardship and endure suffering. He is asking him to share in suffering. He's trying to encourage him and embolden him because Paul is telling Timothy, listen, Timothy, I'm in ministry, you're in ministry, so when you look at the outcome of my life, you should not expect anything different. Now, here's the truth that we need to understand to connect ourselves very personally to what Paul is saying. And it's simply this. If you are a Christian, you are in ministry. If you are a Christian, you are in ministry. So if you think that I'm in ministry as a formal pastor in this church, and you are not in ministry, you're wrong. If you think that, okay, Pastor Curtis and Pastor Matt, They're the ones who are in ministry and I am not in ministry. Or maybe it's the deacons that are included in that. The deacons, they're in ministry, but I'm not in ministry. Maybe you think that it's those who are in some kind of leadership position in the church that are are running something, that have people who are accountable to them, that have some kind of influence over a, a large number of people. Maybe you think that those are the people who have been called to ministry and you think, that you are not a part of that. But the truth is, we're going to see this today, is that if you are a Christian and you haven't died yet, you are in ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.18, at the very least, you have all been given a ministry of reconciliation. You have been given a job. You've been given ministry, and it is to be a mouthpiece. It is through your words to declare to this world that there is hope of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. You have been called to a ministry where you live your life in such a way that it supports everything you say that you believe. So when you say that you believe that there is one God, and we are all accountable to that one God, you live in such a way that that you are accountable to a God, that you live to please Him and not please others. And all of us, at the very least, have been given that position of ministry. So when Paul says to Timothy, 
Timothy, because you're in ministry, you should not expect anything different in your life. You should expect hardship. That same word goes to all of us as Christians. If you're in ministry, you should not expect anything different. So God is always, God is always, we say this truth all the time. It's encouraging even when we're suffering. God is always working for your good and his glory, right? Our good, his glory. It's one of those banners that can just be over our life and every circumstance we find ourselves in. It's the truth that everything is for our good and his glory. But the truth is, is that as God is working for your good and his glory, sometimes that road that he has you on is a, is a nice, paved, well-marked, well-lit road. And sometimes it is a muddy pothole-filled, dark, not-well-marked road that we find ourselves on. Some of you are on the paved road right now, and it's nice, and everything's lit up, and the, the signs are just pointing. It's just, just, okay, I go left up here, I go right there. This is just, this is wonderful. There's no concerns that you're going to get a flat tire. I mean... The taxes are doing their job, right? The road is just paved. It's wonderful. If you've ever been to Mexico, you've experienced this. You're in Mexico, and you're driving on roads, and you're literally fearing for your life. The roads are that bad. And then you cross over into California, right? And it's just, it's just wonderful. And all of a sudden, your body's not shaking anymore. So some of you are on a nice, smooth, paved road right now. Well, some of you are on a road where you're just moving very slow and the wheels are barely turning. They're clogged with mud and you can't see very well what's in front of you. And there's no signs. The signs are gone. Your headlights are dim. What you know, though, is that God is working for your good and for his glory. But when you're on those kinds of roads, when God has you in that kind of a place... Okay, this is what Paul is telling Timothy. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You are in ministry. And if you're going to be in ministry, you can expect there is going to be some difficulty. It is not always going to be fun and enjoyable. Sometimes your ministry is going to be painful. Sometimes it's going to be delightful. Sometimes it's going to be exciting. Sometimes it's going to be mundane. Which is why Paul now, in chapter 2, verse 1, he is going to call Timothy to be strong. To be strong. Because we're going to need strength. Does your life require strength? Your life should require strength. If you're living your life well, if you're living your life to be faithful, if you're obeying God, if you're seeking to honor God, you will need to be strong. God says this over and over again in His Word. He has been saying it since the very beginning. Here you are. I've created you. I've made you. I've saved you. I've called you. Be 
strong. There's going to come a day when you won't need to be strong anymore. But right now you're in a season that requires strength. And that season is called life. From birth to death, it requires great strength. There is not going to be ministry in heaven. No ministry in heaven. There's going to be no evangelism in heaven. No one has snuck in, right, that hasn't heard the gospel, and we're going to be ministering to them. No one is going to need encouragement in heaven. No one is going to be depressed. No one is going to be despairing, right? There are no tears in heaven. But now is the time for tears, and now is the time for struggle, and now is the time for suffering, and now is the time for pain. And I know that we don't live in the realities that some do in the world today, so that the daily suffering and pain that we need strength for is so clear. Right? Most of you know where your next meal is going to come from, and you've got many options of where it's going to come from. For most of you, the hard decision you're going to face today is what you want to eat, not whether or not you're going to eat. You know where you're going to sleep tonight. It's been getting down into the 30s at night, and for us as Californians, that's terrible, right? We can barely handle it. I had like four coats on this morning. But you know that you've got a place where you're going to sleep and you've probably got blankets and you've got goose down comforters and you're going to crank the heat up and you're going to just be burning propane all night. You're going to be putting fires. I mean, you're going to be taken care of, right? So you don't live, we don't live in the world that most people today live in. When you preach to those people and say, be strong, it's going to mean something different. And it's going to seem much more relevant to them than to us, right? But here's the truth. The truth is, you need strength. And we may have many physical and material comforts That most of the world does not. But spiritually, we are just as barren as the rest of the world. And spiritually, we are just as desperate as the rest of the world. And so if you hear this message of strength and you say, okay, that's great. I'm going to remember that for when I go on a mission trip to a third world country. Because they're really going to need to hear it. You need to wrap your mind Wrap your mind about the reality of your life right now and your needs right now. And you need to get yourself to a place where you feel like you need strength. If you don't think you need strength, maybe you're not even fighting sin. Maybe you're not even in the battle. Maybe you're not aware that you have an enemy who is prowling around you and prowling around your family and your wife and your children. And his desire right now is to devour them, is to destroy them, is to see them in hell. Maybe we don't realize how serious, how serious the sins are that we commit. How serious the consequences are, not for ourselves only, but for other people. And so we need this message as much as the entire world does. We need to be strong. 
Paul says to Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's like what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So what is the kind of strength that we are supposed to have as God's people? It is we are to be strengthened by grace. So the strength that we need is a strength that comes from God's undeserved favor. The grace that he pours out on us. So this is not a, when he says be strong, when God says be strong, this is not a self-confidence. Some of you are very self-confident. And you've been very successful in life. And you haven't been beaten down. And so you think highly of yourself. There's a lot of confidence there. He's not talking about that kind of confidence. That to get through this life, you've got to think good, positive thoughts about yourself. Just remember that you can do anything that you set your mind to. This isn't a strength that is derived from within a strength that comes from us that we have to just somehow tap into. This is, what Paul says, this is a strength and confidence through that comes by God's grace. So one is, when you're a Christian, what that means is you've received grace from God. But you can make a distinction of the different ways that God has been gracious to you. One, you've received saving grace. Saving grace. The undeserved favor that God has shown you is that He has saved you. He has called you from darkness and into His marvelous light. He has been good to you. And you didn't deserve that. He didn't look down at everyone and and, and, and you stood out. You stood out but not in ways that you may want to think. That's not why God saved us. He saved us because it was grace. It wasn't compensation. It was undeserved favor. That is God's saving grace. But as a Christian, it's also clear in Scripture that we've been given God's empowering grace. Not just a grace that saves you, but a grace that gives you the power and the strength and the ability to resist temptation, to fight sin, to get up early in the morning and read your Bible, to be a good minister of reconciliation, to live a life that is holy and sanctified, right? It is empowering grace, but it's grace, it is undeserved favor, it is from God, and if it wasn't there you wouldn't be able to do what you may be able to do in Christ. But as well, the strength that we have is not just empowering grace that God gives us. It's a strength that we have when we think about the reality of God's grace. So in other words, it's a strength that we feel and sense and experience when we think about How gracious God has been to us. When we think about God's love. And God's favor. And God's blessing. That is strengthening us. When we think about the reality 
of God's unconditional love for us. It is not because of something that we have done. That is empowering. When we think about the gospel, that is empowering and should give us strength. Many of the ways that we are weak and, and, and frail and like we talked about last week, and shrink back and become puny in our faith is because we think that God's favor is something we have to earn. And when we think that God's favor is something that we have to earn, that is crushing. Because we also know the truth of who we are. And you know and I know that if that's true and if I have to earn God's... Let me speak for myself. I know that if I have to earn God's favor, that's a crushing blow. Because I know what dwells within me. And I know it is not good. And I know there's a hopelessness. And what flows from that is weakness. And no confidence. Because what's the point? And I know I can't measure up. And I know I can't do that. Many Christians who live weak like that are not believing the gospel. And there's not the strength that comes from grace. The strength that says that I can do this and I can say this and I can speak up and I can pray this way and I can go to this person and I can take a stand and I can be bold is strength that comes from knowing that grace is not something that you can lose. When it comes to your salvation, you literally have nothing to lose. And so there's strength that comes from that. So Paul is telling Timothy, okay, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul says, pass on to faithful men the truth that you have heard from me. And this is something that Timothy should be engaged in as a pastor. But this is something that, again, all of you should be engaged in. We should have a mentality that says, what God has given me, what God has revealed to me, I want to pass it on. I'm not talking about paying it forward, okay? but passing it on. What has God shown you? How has God been faithful to you? How has He brought His truth to life in your life. How has He proven faithful? How have you seen His promises revealed to you? What have you learned in your life? And who around you needs to hear that? Who around you needs to know that? Do we think like that? He tells Timothy, I want you to take what I've given you, the gospel, these sound words, truth, and Timothy, I want you to pass it on. I want you to pass it on to faithful men. In other words, not anyone, he's telling Timothy, don't cast your pearls before swine. Don't give it to the pigs. I want you to find those men who are to be faithful, who are going to then in turn... Take this because they're able to teach as well and they're going to pass it on. Timothy, this is how the gospel is still going to be preached in 2012. 
if you pass on what I've given you and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Timothy, if you do that, then there will be people preaching the gospel in 2012. Timothy did what Paul called him to do. And the church has done what God has called them to do. And there has been now for thousands of years a passing on of God's word and of God's truth. We still need this today. This is an enormous need. There are many needs and there are many things that the church needs to be doing, right? We know this. We know that we need to be serving people better than we are. We know that we need to be loving our neighbors practically better than we are. We know that we need to be living lives that are better examples of what it means to be in Christ Jesus. We know that we need to change the... But what we know as well, perhaps is even more important because it's made of such a point in Scripture over and over and over again, is we do need this. We need God to raise up faithful men who will understand God's Word and be able to teach God's Word. And we need those men to teach our children And our grandchildren. And if God hasn't come back yet, our great-grandchildren. And so on and so on. We must continually do what Timothy did. And pass on God's truth to faithful men. Who will in turn be able to teach others. But as well, if you're a Christian, you need to be passing it on. Some of us are great sponges. And we can take it in, and we can learn, and we can understand truth, but then it doesn't go anywhere. This is part of the ministry that all of us are called to, that all of us are in. Do we take what God has given us, and do we pass it on? Do we know each other? Do you seek to know each other? Are we a selfish community or are we a selfless community? Are you interested in relationships within the church so that you can get something out of them? Are you interested in relationships in this church so that you can have your needs met? Or are you interested in serving others? Are you interested in being faithful to others? Are you interested in meeting with someone so that you can maybe pass something on? Do you ask questions? Do you listen or do you just talk? Do you try to understand where somebody is and what their needs are and what their hurts are or maybe what their frustrations are? Do you find those things out because you want to selflessly serve them and pass on maybe some things that you've learned along the way? Are you someone who is going to others wanting for them to pass things on to you. 
Do you go to those who have been walking with Jesus longer than you have, who have lived through life longer than you have, who have experienced things that you are in the middle of right now, who have gone through fires that you are just now getting into? Do you seek out those people and do you ask them questions? How did you do this? And how did you, how did you figure this out? And how did you organize your time? And, and what scripture did you find especially helpful? And how did you stay faithful through this? And was it ever difficult for you? And did you ever feel like pulling your hair out? And did you ever think about just giving up and, you know, asking questions? I am convinced there just needs to be far more question asking in our relationships with one another. We're all very interested in talking to each other and saying things to each other. But how interested are we in asking questions? Older to the younger, younger to the older, asking the younger questions so that you can know them, so that you can pray for them and love them and care for them. Younger to the older, are you asking questions so that you can learn from them? This is what we are plagued with as younger people. It is a pride that doesn't ask questions because we think that we have got it all figured out. Many of us, we struggle with it. It's just prolonged adolescence. We're still in the, 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 the stage of life where we think our parents are idiots and don't know anything. Right? So many teenagers, right, go through a phase where my mom and my, they don't, they just don't understand. They don't know what they're talking about. They're making no sense. And then most of those teenagers grow up at some point and realize that their parents actually did know some things that they didn't know. But for most of us, that doesn't happen until we're like 50. And before that, we can get caught in this, well, no, it's just me and my peers and my Facebook friends and my book and my Bible study and, and everybody looks like me and talks like me and that's all that I need. And we're not, we're not looking to have it passed on, passed on to us. Now, Paul charges Timothy, he says, be strong. Pass this on what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul then says this share in suffering and then he's going to give two metaphors like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. And here's what they all have in common hard work. This is the point he's making. Timothy, don't expect anything different. You're in ministry. Guess what? Ministry is hard work. I had no idea when I got into ministry as a pastor that it was hard work. In fact, I got into ministry originally because I thought it was not hard work. This looks amazing. I mean, I just, I talk a lot. I don't really have to listen. Just talk and people listen to me. And maybe an hour each week or so, I just get up and talk. And everyone looks at me and nods their head for the most part. If you have them sleep, you know who you are every week. It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's cold though today. You're not falling asleep. I talk for an hour and people look at me. It's time for next week. I just download something off the internet and preach that. Get to go to camps. I like that. I'm going to camp now. 
When I'm in high school, when I have these aspirations, I just want to prolong this. I'm going to be a, wait, youth pastor. I don't even know there was such a thing. So ministry, where I get to just keep being an adolescent, this is wonderful. And they, they, they'll, they'll give me money to do that. So I just go on these trips, but now I get to drive. And I'm in charge. And you pay me. Sweet. I'm absolutely, I hear the voice of God calling me clearly to this ministry. That's what I thought. It wasn't until, you know, years ago that I realized that it was difficult. But remember, we are all in ministry. You are all in ministry. Ministry is hard work. In other words, faithfully doing what God has called you to do is hard work. That's ministry. Not just doing life, not just doing things, but faithfully doing what God has called you to do is hard work. If you're going to do what God has given you to do faithfully, if you're just going to be a wallflower, or if you're just going to sit there, or if you're just going to go through the motions, no, that's not going to be hard work. You don't need to be a soldier, you don't need to be a farmer, you don't need to be an athlete. You don't even need to be junior varsity athlete. You can do that. But if you're going to do it faithfully, if you're going to do it in a way where God is glorified, you should look at a soldier. You should look at an athlete, a good athlete. You should look at a farmer and know that this is what you can expect. Do you know what your ministry is? Do we know what our ministry is? Do you know what God has called you to do? Let me define it like this. This is what your ministry is. If you want to use the word your calling. This is what your calling is. When we say your ministry and your calling, we mean the work that God has given me to do, which requires strength by grace. So it's not everything you have to do. But it's the work that God has given you to do that you cannot do well. And you cannot do faithfully unless God's grace is poured out in your life. That is your calling. So even just your job, that's not your calling. But if you're going to do your job faithfully, and if you're going to be a witness and an example, and good things are going to come out of your mouth and flow from your heart, that's a calling. And that requires, right, uh, you to be strengthened by grace that is in Christ Jesus. So we know, generally speaking, first of all, we know that all of us have been given this calling. All of us have been given this ministry. We have been given the ministry of, I said it before, reconciliation. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, which means that that this is why God calls us like a, a city on a hill. This is why God calls us salt in the earth. It means that we have the gospel. We know the gospel. And we live in a world around people who do not have the gospel and do not know the gospel. And they are to hear the gospel from us. Simply. And that is the ministry of reconciliation that has been given to us. But some of you can get even more specific about the ministry that God has given you or the calling that God has given you. 
Some of you are husbands. Some of you are wives. Some of you are fathers. Some of you are mothers. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're as a Christian in God's family and a part of His household. You are a brother. You are a sister. Now, some of you may not be called to formal ministry, but you have been called to ministry. And God has providentially in your life made it clear what your ministry is. And you may now have thought about just your position in life as your ministry, but it is the truth. If you're a husband, then this is your ministry. Your ministry on planet Earth is to be a husband. Not just exist. Not just be there. Not just the guy who's next to her with the ring on his finger. Not just the one who eats her food and makes clothes dirty for her to clean. Now, that's, not, that's what being a husband is. You are called to be a husband. Like 1 Peter 3 talks about, and Ephesians 5 talks about, to, to love her and to protect her and to provide for her and to cherish her and to keep her warm and to nourish her and to wash her with the Word of God. These kinds of things. And if you're a husband, then that is your ministry. That is your calling. You have been called by God to be a husband. And you don't need him to appear to you at the foot of your bed one night and to say, I am calling you to be a husband. When you said, I do, God made it very clear. I have given you a wife. She is a gift to you. And you are called to be. This is your ministry. You're to be a husband. If you are a wife, God has called you to be a wife. It is not just a change in relationship. And a different position in life that God puts you on that is merely for your enjoyment and blessing and benefit. Though that may come. He has given you a ministry. He has given you a calling. If God gives you children, He has given you a calling. He's saying, I call you to be a father. I call you to be a mother. That doesn't mean that you're just the one who houses them for 18 years. It doesn't mean that you're just the one that feeds them and drives them to soccer practice and makes sure that they're safe. It means that you are a minister of reconciliation to these children. It means that you are responsible and will be held accountable for their little souls. And I am putting you in a pastoral position, mom and dad, with these children. And you are to pastor them and shepherd them and love them. So we mustn't think about our ministry and our calling, and this is what we tend to do, as what we do formally in a church. That is not your ministry. That is not your calling. It may be part of it if ever you get there. But God has given you many other ministries and many other callings. If you are an older woman, God has given you a ministry and a calling that he talks about in Titus. He has given you a job to do that will require grace from Jesus Christ. And you are to teach and love and pray for and train in whatever way you can younger women. Older men, you are to be like Paul to Timothy, and you are to pass on and entrust, and to equip, and to encourage. 
If we're brothers and sisters, we're to share one another's burdens and to confess sin. These are all callings that God has given us. You've heard me say this before. If someone asks me what my ministry is and what my calling is, it is not, first and foremost, my role in a local church. When I say what God has called me to do, I don't say God has called me to be a pastor at Veritas Church. I say God has called me. This is what God has called me to do first. He has called me to be a pastor to my wife. God has made me a husband. That's my primary calling in life. If you're a married man, that is your primary calling in life. It's your primary job that will require God's grace to get it done. And you'd be like a soldier, a farmer, an athlete in that role. And other things will support that. And will be a means to providing for her and protecting her and loving her and cherishing her. But that is my primary calling. Then one day in 2002, December 8th, God brought Peyton. And now God changed my calling and increased my calling. And now God made it very clearly. So this is how God speaks to me. He gives me a wife. He gives me children. This is God's voice. God said, now you're a father. You have a responsibility and a calling and a ministry. It is not just to keep them out of jail for 18 years. It is to care for their souls. It is to nourish their souls. What is it that God has done in your life? What is it that God has made so clear to you that is your calling? Listen, when it comes to God's will for your life, we are to live our lives according to God's revealed will, not God's secret will. See, some of you read the verse, right? That God has a plan for your life. And we waste all this time trying to figure out what is God's plan for my life? What is my ministry? What is my calling? What does God want me to do with the rest of my life? And much of that is a part of his secret will, which means it's a secret. And you'll know when his secret will becomes his revealed will. And if you've been taught that there's some recipe that you can follow and just mix the right spiritual disciplines together and read the right psalms and be still and be quiet long enough and God will give you insight into His secret will, you don't have a biblical leg to stand on. You make your plans and God directs your steps and God will make clear to you what your calling is. So, so many Christians, right, waste their time trying to figure out what God's calling is. And he's saying to many of us, I've made it clear what your calling is. It may not be glamorous. And it may not be what you were hoping. And it may not be as exciting as maybe you thought it was. But it's to do a lot of laundry right now. And it is to cook a lot of food. And it is to make sure that your family is taken care of. And it is to, just between you and me, it is just to pray and bring up your children's names and your husband's name and your, and your wife's name. And, and it is just to go to work. And it is to sit in that cubicle where you just want to shoot someone. <laughs> and it is to go there every day and not complain and not get caught up in worrying about being fulfilled in your job. Because most likely your job's not going to fulfill you. 
It's not supposed to fulfill you. It's supposed to feed you and feed your family. So if it's doing that, be fulfilled in that. It's a means to an end, your ministry and your calling. So what is it that God very clearly has called you to do? Because if you're going to do it and work heartily, it will require great strength by grace. Whatever it is, you will be tired. This is how you know. That's how you know that you are fulfilling your calling. It's going to be painful. It's going to be tough. You're going to be tired. My wife and I have this book that we love. We read it very early on in our marriage and have been recommending it. I think we sell it in the bookstore. It's this book called Reforming Marriage. And we love what it teaches about marriage. But it has this weird cover. This is this outdated, weird cover. And for the longest time, we just didn't get it. We just thought it was ridiculous. If you look at the cover, it's like these two people that look like they're from three centuries ago. There's a book on marriage, right? And it's this husband and it's this wife. And he is like passed out at a table. Just he's got like a cup of coffee, I think if I remember right. And he's just, his face is just in the table. And she, I might have it mixed up. And she's just like in this chair. Just, and, and, she's, and she's like this. I thought, what in the world? What in the world does this have to do with family? What in the world does this have to do with remarriage? We don't laugh at that cover anymore. We understand. We understand that being two sinners married to one. We don't even throw kids in it yet. And we've got four, four, five, five, four boys and one little girl all under ten. But just take two sinners. Just marriage, right? Take two sinners. It's ridiculous when you think about what God does. Like one sinner isn't bad enough. Now I'm going to make you one. It's going to combine you. This is what happens. Two sinners become one. And it's difficult. It's difficult. Wonderful. Difficult. You throw children in. Five kids. Last night at my home, it was just, just madness at my home. This morning, just madness at my home. Just trying to find children. <laughs> just trying to just get a 20 on them. Just trying to locate kids. My, my sons know what it means. Peyton, do you have a 20 on Brady? Where is he? Can you, I find him this morning. It's like 30 degrees outside. And, and two of them are pretending to be sled dogs. <laughs> and they have, they have rope tied around their waist. And they got about 20 feet of rope behind them. It's like 7 o'clock in the morning. Like, good grief. My children don't sleep in. My children get up at 5 in the morning. 5 in the morning. Ask Kristen. 5 in the morning. You want to know why we... They're out there. And the other end is tied 20 feet behind them to a sled. And they're seeing how many of them they can put on the sled and how many of them they need to pull them. And they're just, they're falling, they're flipping, and they're in their clothes, right, for church. And they've changed since my wife put the clothes out. I saw this morning, she's loading them into the car and she sees what some of them are wearing. And it was not approved. In our home, all clothing gets approved from me down. It gets approved. You don't leave the house. I, I literally have sent pictures to my wife. If I have the kids, is, do I have permission. Is this okay? And it just happened yesterday again, right? With myself and others. She just said, you cannot wear that again. 
you are not allowed to, you need to give, I need you to take that shirt off and no joke and give it to me. Let me give it to me. It's, it's, it's fine. No, you need to give it to me. It's going in the trash. But no, it's functional. Eric, yeah, she puts it down. My boys too. Just total madness. Okay, this is why, this is why at night, right, we, we gather the children, we go through our routine, and then we get them to bed. You know, it's 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock, and then it's time for us to enjoy one another's company for seven minutes. <laughs> and then what is the picture? One of us is just gone. Asleep. Go, go ahead. When we're done, go find Reforming Marriage and look at the cover. It's Eric and Kristen. And as many of you, you know this. If we're, this is why Paul says, be strong. It is going to require work. It is not going to be easy, Christian. If you're going to treat everything like a ministry and a calling, And not just go through the motions, but selflessly be ministers of reconciliation to your brothers, your sisters, your church family, your husband, your wife, your children. You're going to need to be like a soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So he says, you're like a soldier in this way. You are single-minded in your purpose, in your goal. And it is to please your master. So what are these different things that God has brought into your life? It is a ministry in which you are to please and glorify and honor God. And you must be wholeheartedly devoted to that ministry. You realize at the time, a Roman soldier could be away from his family for years at a time. There was no Skype. You know that. Just away and had to be solely devoted to whatever it was that the king or emperor had called him to do. So too, Paul uses this metaphor over and over and over again in his words. We are like a soldier And we are not to be entangled or caught up in civilian affairs. We need to be single-minded. Things like elections. Mustn't get entangled with civilian affairs. We talked about this a little on Wednesday night, if you were here. When it comes to elections, for example, do you have a role? Do you have a responsibility? Do you have a duty? I, I think you do. I believe you do. But can you get entangled? Have you or do you know others who have been entangled the last month in civilian affairs? Maybe it's entertainment for you. Maybe it's sports for you. Maybe it's fashion for you. Maybe it's music for you. Do not get, be single-minded in our focus. It doesn't mean that these things don't exist and we don't pay attention to them. It doesn't mean that some of these things aren't even things that we are to enjoy. But do we get entangled and caught up in these civilian pursuits and stop thinking and remembering that we are here to honor and glorify God and even in and through these other things we may participate in? It says you need to be single-minded like a soldier. Charles Spurgeon said this, Up, I pray you. By him whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and yet were wet with tears. 
by him on whose head are many crowns and who yet wore the crown of thorns, by him who is king of kings and lord of yours and yet bowed his head to death for you. Resolve that to life's latest breath you will spend and be spent for his praise. The Lord grant that there may be many such in this church, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Like a soldier. An athlete, verse 5, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There are rules that we must abide by. This is God's law. This is God's word. There is a way in which God has called us to live this life. At this time, if an athlete was participating in the Olympiad, he had to follow through with an intense 10-month training leading up to the Olympiad, and then he had to swear by oath that he had been disciplined enough to train according to the rules for 10 months. If we are going to be strong in the Lord and if we are going to bring him honor and glory in the ministry and the callings that he has, not only must we see ourselves as soldiers, but we are like an athlete. There are no shortcuts. We must live according to God's rules and according to God's laws and live faithfully to him. And there are no shortcuts. We may think, oh, what if I do this, or if I, you know, cut this out, or, oh, maybe I can live a sexually immoral life, and then God will still bless this relationship, or maybe I can live in whatever way I want, pay no attention to holiness and being set apart for God, and I can expect that there will still be blessing in my life, that I'll receive the award, the prize, when I cross the finish line, and it's not true. Not if you don't compete according to the rules. You know what this is like in sports today. No one is competing according to the rules. Suspension after suspension after suspension because guys are trying to get away with competing and achieving a certain level of performance, but doing it by breaking the rules. What happens when they get caught doing that? They're disqualified. Give us your medals. Give us your trophies. Give us your awards. Give us the awards and the trophies of those who may even have trained legitimately beside you. We're even going to take their medals and their trophies. This is the consequence. Why? Because you did not compete according to the rules. And so whatever your ministry, whatever your calling is, how are you in God's word called to compete? How are you called to what rules has he given you that you must follow? Pay attention to them. Don't expect an award. You understand that grace as a Christian, grace cannot be taken from you, but awards can be taken from you. And you understand that when we see Christ and we're all in glory, do you know there will be awards given out? There's going to be rewards that are given out to God's people according to faithfulness. And you can lose those. You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose grace. But you can lose awards that may be waiting for you and further glory for God through your life awaiting you by not competing according to the rules. Holiness. As a Christian, you are called to be holy. 
And we think that because I'm a Christian and because I'm saved by grace and not by works and it's locked up and it cannot be taken from me, I can live however I want to live. And you're not like the athlete who is competing according to the rules. We need to be self-disciplined. And then he compares us to a farmer. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Most of you know how it works for a farmer. If a farmer doesn't work, a farmer does not eat. In fact, if a farmer does not work, his family does not eat. There is no reaping if there is no sowing. The life of a good farmer is what? He is up before everyone else. And most likely he is to bed before everyone else. The farmer is constantly working. He isn't taking a, a day off. Right? We can do that. Most of us aren't farmers. Like, ah, oh, my head hurts. I'm not going to make it into work today. Ah, oh, my toe. Stubbed it. Can barely walk. I'm gonna need, I, need, I need some time out. We're quick, we're quick to do it because we can. It's available to us. Right? Some of you have jobs where you have written into your contracts days that you can be lazy. Right? You get a certain amount of them. No cost to you. The pay will stay the same. You've got this money. You're sick. You don't feel well. You've got a tummy ache. Right? It's okay. We'll give you 10 of them every year. 10 a year. Farmer can't do that. Farmer can't do that. No, I'm just not going to feed the animals today. No, I'm just not going to milk the cow today. No, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out and, 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 and break through the ice so the cows can drink this morning. He, he, he can't do that. He can't take any time off. He has to always, always be working. He has to always be planning ahead. And if he doesn't do that, and if he doesn't sow the seed now, then his family won't reap months from now. And they will not eat. And they will not be provided for it. He says, we need to be like a farmer. J.C. Ryle said, I will never shrink from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who concerned himself with sowing his fields and never looking at them till harvest as expect a believer to attain to holiness who is not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sunday. I love the way he says that. The use of his Sunday. Our God is a God who works by means. And he will never bless the soul of that man who pretends to be so high and spiritual that he can get on without them. Be strong. Be strong. Like a soldier. Like an athlete. Like a farmer. Paul says in verse 7, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think about this. That's the application for us. Think about it. Don't glaze over it. Don't move on to the next study. Don't move on to the next book. So many of us are just on information overload. I'm reading these books. I'm doing these studies. I listen to this podcast. I listen to these preachers. I go to these seminars. I go to these conferences. I'm getting this training. And you actually aren't learning anything because you never think. 
never think. It seems like something Paul wouldn't have to say. What do you mean think? I'm thinking all the time. No, stop. Just stop for a minute and think about what you just read. Think about what Paul is saying. Just settle into it and think about it. Think about the application. Think about the implications. We are so dependent, right, on 20 minutes of sermons just telling us how to apply things. We're dependent on that because we don't think. How does this apply? What are the implications? What about my personal life? What about my family life? What about my work life? How does this apply? Paul says, slow down, Timothy, and think. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit will give you understanding. And now he gives them an encouragement and a warning. He's told them to be strong, and now he's going to support that. Try to motivate that. It's no wonder what he says next. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel... Remember Jesus. This is what we need to do. Don't forget Jesus. Simple? It's not, is it? Simple to understand, but it's easy for us to forget. What has God been doing with His people ever since the beginning? Remember, remember, remember. You are quick to forget, God is telling us. You are quick to forget my word, my truth. You're going to be strong. You need to remember Jesus. You need to read his word. You need to pray. You need to be with his people. He needs to be on your tongue. You need to talk about him. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul is saying, I preach Jesus Christ, offspring of David, in other words, the son of man, but risen from the dead. We preach, this is the power of Christ, we preach a risen Christ. Jesus is alive, alive right now, here among us right now. On the throne right now. He is not on a cross. Some of you like a crucifix. I don't like a crucifix. He's not on the cross. The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. The only thing that's not empty is the throne. Everything else is empty. That's where Jesus is. But then Paul, he said the same thing last week. Right? It's encouragement. And then for a minute, it doesn't sound like encouragement. He says, listen, remember Jesus Christ. And then Paul reminds him, this is why I am suffering, by the way, and bound in chains as a criminal. Now, that part, before he goes on, that doesn't sound like the way you encourage someone. Okay, I want you to do this, okay? Be strong. Remember Jesus. Preach the gospel. Pass it on. And remember, that's why I'm chained to a wall in a prison in Rome awaiting execution. Be encouraged, Timothy. <laughs> or don't expect anything different. When they knock on your door and they're ready to arrest you, don't be surprised. Let me encourage you. I mean, that doesn't sound like things are going well, does it? 
And this, you are, you are bound. Okay, Timothy, think about Timothy. You are bound. Conclusion. Things are not going well. You are chained to a wall. Conclusion. Things are not going well. These are just human conclusions. You, you are suffering. Suffering is not a good thing, we think. Suffering is something you want to avoid. You don't want to suffer. That's why I take Tylenol. That's why I take ibuprofen. I mean, that's why I do these. I don't want to suffer. We avoid suffering. When we see suffering coming, we get off the highway. We, run, we turn around. We go in the opposite direction. You're suffering. That is not going well. In fact, you might even think, Paul, I mean, you're in prison. You're locked up. The gospel is, you were out here preaching the gospel everywhere. It looks to me like the gospel, the word of God, is now bound and locked up in that jail cell. We ever think that we have a better idea than God does and think that God does something providentially and we think, oh, but God, Paul could have been so much more useful out of that prison cell. John Bunyan could have been so much more use out of that prison cell, but if John Bunyan wasn't locked up, we never would have got Pilgrim's Progress. Remember what Paul says in Philippians about the work that God was doing when he was enchained in the cell? So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, how did that become known? Paul told them. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, it may look one way. Oh, Christian, it always looks one way. It always looks like we're crushed. It always looks like it's done. It always looks like God is not prevailing. It always looks like we're, we're, we're doomed. It always looks like things are not going to work out. It always looks like things are not going well. It always, I mean, these are the perception, right? And Paul is so quick to correct that perception. He says, I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. As powerful. It says, I may be bound, but the gospel is not bound. This is that massive, paradoxical, motivating truth in Paul's letter. No matter what is happening around you and in you, remembering that God's word is not bound. This is the truth that no matter what happens in life or in my life, no matter what happens... The gospel is not bound. He goes on to say, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The truth is that while everything may look so on the outside, the reality is that no matter what is happening in life, no matter what is happening in your life, the word of God, the gospel is not bound, but it is continuing to go out and do its work to save the elect, to save God's people. And Paul says that truth keeps me enduring. Paul is saying this is what keeps me strong. And he's telling Timothy, be strong. And then he ends with a trustworthy saying, 
If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. The first half of this is clearly an encouragement, right? If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. One of the descriptions that God gives us of ourselves as Christians is that we are dead men and dead women. We're dead. We're we're, we're, we're dead and cut off to the desires of this world. We're dead to the consequences of sin. We're dead to the reign of sin in our lives, and we're alive to Christ. And if we have died with Him, when Jesus died, our sin was put to death, was paid for, then we will also live with Him. That is encouraging. No matter what this life looks like, that we will live forever with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Endurance is sometimes, most of the time, maybe what your life is. God never calls you to be successful. He calls you to be faithful. I know what success would look like for you. God doesn't call every pastor to have a church of 3,000 people. And some pastors have churches of 20 and 30 people. But God doesn't call them to be successful. He calls them to be faithful. Some of you are married to an unbeliever. And God hasn't called you to be successful. He hasn't called you to win them over. And when you've won them over, you have succeeded. God has called you to be faithful. And it may be less about you fixing things around you and more about what you can learn from things around you as you endure and are made more like Jesus. And some of you look at everything and you just say, okay, how can I fix this? And the question you should be asking is, what can I learn from this? Maybe God isn't going to fix it. Maybe God isn't going to change it the way you'd like. And maybe, maybe your children are not moving in the direction that you want them to move in spiritually and you think that you're called to be successful and to make sure that they become believers like you and that's not your job. Your job is to be faithful. And God may give some of you a rebellious child because He means to teach you patience. And He means to teach you about His unconditional love for you. And he means to do a work of grace in you. And you should ask yourself, how do I simply endure this? Because God does not call you to succeed. God calls you to be faithful and to honor him and to love him in all that you do. And so if we endure, we also arraign with him. And now a bit of warning that he gives. First, if we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus said, if we are ashamed of him in this lifetime, if we shrink back, if we're puny, if we hide our relationship with him, And he will be ashamed of us in heaven. It's a frightening thought. He will deny us. If we deny him, okay, privately we claim to have this relationship with him, but publicly we say we don't know him, then we will meet him and he'll say, I don't know you. That's a warning to be strong and take the ministry and calling that God has given you seriously. And now there's been disagreement for centuries over this last verse if we are faithless he remains faithful it depends what paul means by faithful 
faithless. Does he mean the intermittent faithlessness that we all experience as Christians where we are not as faithful to God as we ought to be and we all have bouts of faithlessness where we don't trust and honor Him the way that we do. And if we do that, though, God is faithful to love us and to save us and to bring us into glory. Or is He talking about faithless in terms of a lack of faith? You do not really trust Him. You do not really believe the gospel. And if you are without faith, God will still be faithful. And it means, John Stott, Matthew Henry would say, it means that he is faithful not only to his promises, but God is faithful to his threats. God will be faithfully just to you. And I think that's what Paul's talking about. I think that's the harsh warning. Those first two phrases, encouragement. The second two, a warning. All motivation to be strong in Christ. You understand, every single one of us, right, simply put, every single one of us is going to end up in one of two places. I want to talk about it in terms of places. We will either be in heaven with God or we will be in hell without him. And we will either be objects of his affection for eternity or we will be objects of his wrath and justice for eternity. And whether or not you are faithful, believe the gospel and trust Christ. That will show you where you're headed. And some of us will go one place and some of us will go the other. But here's what Paul is saying. Wherever you end up, in the end, God is faithful. God is faithful. He will display His glory through you as an object of His mercy. And He'll display His beauty by displaying what a merciful God He is. Or God will be glorified as He displays His justice through you. And He will be seen as beautiful and perfect and wonderful as He is seen as a God who is just and right and does not let the criminal go. It's a warning to us to be faithful. In order to be faithful, we must be strong men and women of Christ. Let me pray and then we'll take communion together and we'll remember together what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that your word is not bound. Thank you, Lord. It may have looked in the first century like Your word was not going to keep going forth, that it was being brought to an end, that Christianity was ending, that the gospel was going to be done. But here we are, God, and we are a testimony that your word was not bound, that it went forth. And here we are in this nation, believers, 
Because you, in your grace and your wisdom, you brought the good news of the gospel to us. And you opened our eyes and opened our hearts to believe this good news. So we're the most grateful people on the planet. Thank you, Father. We know it's nothing in us. We have no explanation for your favor or for your love when we look in ourselves. We can only point to your grace and your mercy and thank you for showing it to us. We pray that you be honored and blessed in the rest of our worship service as we remember you, as we sing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.